Hey everyone, uh, Ryan here. Just welcoming you back to the s second part of our discussion of my book, How Are You Going to Pay for That? Smart Answers to the Dumbest Question in Politics. And um, yeah, without further ado, we'll just jump right in. Well, I think this is the, I mean, like we were talking about, like, you know, if the wealthy, for the wealthy to rule, like they must control the flows of money, they must control the flows of production. And I think this is the, right, this is not the contradiction, but this is the, the, the kind of, well, yeah, this is the actual contradiction that our, contradiction, like, our, yeah, sure. our society is stuck in, which is that you, the things you have to do to make sure that the business elite continue to rule are also things that impoverish the, you know, vast majority. And that, like, and that, as Ryan was saying, like, just like bleeds out the economic system and bleeds out society's ability to function. And so you're stuck in this, you know, they, they, they have to like, they have to grind everybody up, like just like enough to maintain their power, but not quite so much that they destroy the whole system. But of course, like they're right. just, they're just human beings. So balance. like yeah. they're, they're yeah. going to miscalculate. I think one of the things that's happening right now is like, you know, we have, we have chewed up like the masses of American of American citizens and American the American social fabric to the point that like I mean things are like on the verge of blowing up and collapsing and like I think that's why you're staring down the barrel of like a of a Republican Party that genuinely seems to like would be happy if like we descended into autocracy. Well, yeah. So, I mean, let's talk about this, Ryan, because that, that's a that's a great point. You, you connect in your book the anti democratic nature of of neoliberalism and um, the way that uh, it's no coincidence that your your moral vision and economic and political vision is bound up um, with democracy and with markets serving the people rather than people twisting themselves and being contorted to serve the interests of the reified economy. So uh, maybe we could talk about how oligarchy and autocracy, as, as, as Jeff was saying, go together and how, uh, you know, even white supremacy and some of the, uh, you know, the more fascistic operations on the right, whether institutional or, you know, faux populist, how that all relates to, to kind of the, the economics we've been talking about. Yeah, that's a <clears throat> I think it's a key point. You know, you can look at um the rise of Trump in many ways. I think there's a lot of sophisticated things to say about it in terms of the, you know, backlash to the George Floyd mo uh movement uh and the, and then previously like the Ferguson, you know, Black Lives Matter, basically the white supremacy and the Jim Crow South uh, and the the antebellum, you know, slave society of the Confederacy. I think that that you can't really talk about conservatism in America without looking at the dominance of the the kind of business class, the the capitalist class. And you look at who are Trump's principal allies, uh, who are his who and and like the Republican Party more broadly. It's people with. A lot of like crackpot right wing lunatics with shitloads of money, the Mercers, the Koch brothers. Uh, one, uh, there's just one brother actually. The right, the one guy died. 
you know, private capitalists, not publicly owned capitalists. So there's like a kind of cleavage there. You don't see a lot of like sort of JP Morgan stockholders, you know, institutional investors getting behind Trump. It's it's more diffuse than that. But you you look at uh you know systems of white supremacy basically over the entirety of American history. They have always been essentially in, entrenched in both identity and the economic system. You know, slavery was about controlling the most valuable property in the country. Slaves were worth more than all the banks and the railroads and the industrial property put together before the Civil War. Civil War. You know, uh, 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 today you have a economic elite that can't offer its constituents, conservative Trump voters, anything uh, material. They have taken it all. They're not going to give you Medicare. What they can give you is uh, identity, culture war, grievance, politics. The wages of whiteness, this, baby. This turns out to be quite effective. And it's not a coincidence, I think, that, you know, the Jim Crow South was incredibly unequal. Um, and that, uh, you know, the uh, uh, antebellum South was even more unequal than that. But that, you you know, this sense of uh, uh, domination of people who who are in charge of things who are who who like run society political elites they need us they need a way to like justify their their rule they need a, 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 a an an, I, an ideology something that will provide some sort of political buy-in and you know um, bigotry is a very effective way of producing that in the in the last chapter I'm I'm uh, uh, kind of getting into this in a more like explicit fashion, but you know, it's it's like a real problem when you're talking about uh, uh, racism with the uh, union movement and and whatnot. Like the union movement has a very a very unfortunate history of 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 racism, and you know, a f- of uh, a, a fair number of instances of uh, you know racial solidarity, particularly the communists. Communist union organizers yep. were very good about this, you know, uh, for, for, for good reasons and bad reasons. Um, it was useful for Soviet foreign policy. But um, I think that uh, th- this is kind of the key question that the, the left or liberals or whoever, you know, anybody wants to sort of like contest the dominance of the sort of capitalist slash racist Republican uh, hegemonic force, that's the thing they need to figure out. Uh, they, they've they've yeah. got to assemble a majority, a multiracial democratic majority of people who uh, believe in democracy and economic equality. And right. that's where it is. And we can't, we cannot on the left ignore white supremacy and ignore, right? Like, you know, no. th- there's some on the left who, who want to just say that all the solutions are purely uh, economic policies and pretend that white supremacy isn't 
dominant and isn't interconnected, right? No. Um, you have a you have a great you have a great quote here. Uh, I like to call it a juicy quote, Jeff. I don't know if you if you agree if it's juicy or not, but you tell me. Uh, here's the juicy quote: "Quote the criminal punishment system today is not designed to solve the problem of crime. Rather, it has been designed to warehouse the social dysfunction caused." by propertarian rule and to keep a boot on the neck of the disproportionately black and brown lower class. It is not that dissimilar from a full-blown dictatorship secret police. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 that, that strikes me as a pretty straightforward description of reality. (laughs) Juicy, juicy. (laughs) Right. But, but I mean, Ryan, isn't part of your point here that like, if we don't think through and understand the history of slavery, Jim Crow, and white supremacy and how it relates to uh, the class divide and specifically how it relates to the wages of whiteness and to the way that capitalism persists in harming people of all races um, through the rule of these oligarchs, uh, if we fail to see how the oligarchy uh, connects to white supremacy and autocracy and stuff that then we're missing something very important on the left, right? Absolutely. I don't think there's any way that you can paper over these sort of things. Um, you know, I don't think that you need to like, you know, say, okay, Amazon warehouse workers, you know, you need to read fucking Robin D'Angelo, you know, and, and uh, uh, <laughs> no one needs to read Robin D'Angelo. Right? Yeah. You, you need to become inca- incredibly well, you know, it's like if you are in the context of a union organizing movement a votes a vote, you need to get it however you can. Um, but I think in the broader union movement, I, I think that's absolutely central. I mean, in any kind of like egalitarianism. You have to like look at this stuff head on. You know, you have to create uh, a, a a culture of tolerance uh, within the the you know the the, the multiracial, multi ethnic working class majority. I was recently reading um, a book about uh, Tammany Hall. It's called Machine Made. I forget the uh, author. It's 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 quite good. Um, but he he talks a lot about how. One of the functions of Tammany, the Tammany machine, you know, which has a terrible reputation today, had a terrible reputation for most of its existence, um, was to incorporate very diverse uh, groups, people who did not like each other, who uh, into the body politic. Irish Catholics, German immigrants, Jewish immigrants. These were people who would go and, uh, you know, they would play baseball together, you know, like like they found a sort of very concrete, often quite grubby uh, social commonality and a common interest in a machine politics. And then also in labor unions, which sort of became affiliated with with Tammany over the over the years and, and especially into the, uh, the 20th century. But that, I think, is a species of the type of thing that needs to happen. Uh, not to say that, you know, we need to give lots of uh, government contracts to politically connected firms necessarily, but that, you know, you, you, you need to create a, an ideological sense of solidarity in, you know, a sort of working majority of the American people to say that, like, we all agree that, that like, people can live in this country and they can... Uh, you know, join a union, vote, uh, you know, 
make their needs heard in the you know public discourse and this is just part of being an american as a, as against you know today the trumpers and previously you know the sort of like self-proclaimed descendants of the fucking puritan you know mayflower uh 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 people who quote unquote got here first uh that happened in the you know the the 19th century you know there were the anglo-saxon reformers who thought that uh you know government should not be beha- uh, deployed on behalf of the poor it should only be deployed on behalf of the rich not coincidentally themselves so like uh, it- Interestingly, Adam Smith said the opposite. Uh, go- government regulations should only regulate to help the poor. Uh, so it's his, his, his vision. A is, very uh, misunderstood you know. fellow, Adam Smith. You know, people always. At, at, yeah, much better than most of the caricatures we work with today would portray him. Yeah. I get into that in the book. Um, the the Yeah, I saw that. We've got Adam Smith in the book. We've got Joan Robinson. We've got Keynes. We've got Mark Twain. We've got James Baldwin. All kinds of stars. It's, uh, but, you know. But, like, on, on this topic that Ryan was just on, like, there, yeah. it, it's interesting, like, how much in American political culture is just taken as a given that there's something, you know, fundamentally illegitimate, wrong, and immoral about, like, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours arrangements yeah. in like political coalitions. But like, and it's like, you know, the, the expectation is that like, you know, if you advocate for a policy, you have to advocate for it based on like yeah. the the pure platonic merits. Of yeah, no, the no handouts, Jeff. Don't ask for a handout. Right? The, only, the like, only handouts are for the rich. <laughs> like the way actual flesh and blood human beings living out their daily lives, like find yeah. solidarity is in helping each other. Reciprocity, like you do something baby, yeah. for me and then I do something for you. Yeah, exactly. Reciprocity is kind of like the foundation, I think, of any solidarity that is going to last. And like, I mean, it, reciprocity, like a, the Tammany Hall, like makes it obvious. Reciprocity comes with the like risk of corruption, but it's, you know, you, you, you're never going to be able to build anything like without that. And I think to connect this into the other themes we're talking about, like, to have reciprocity, particularly to be able to have reciprocity in the sphere of like politics and the ability to build mass coalitions that are founded on reciprocity, you have to have a public sector that is abundant and is capable of like doing things for people so that people can say, yes, we will be in a coalition together and I will use the public sector to do this for you and you will use the public sector to do this for me. And so if you have an entire economic apparatus that is built around the idea that efficiency and prosperity and wealth gains and everything good in the world is to be found by like making sure rich people are in charge and can do whatever the hell they want. You can't do it. Like you are, you like the entire system is built to fracture the masses of people into, you know, competing tribes that are all stuck in like a blood sport thunderdome with each other (laughs) and like people like obviously people like you can people on the left and outside of the left argue all day about um you know nicole hannah jones ta-nehisi coates but like one of the things both of them acknowledge is that like slavery was a profit generating system first and foremost and like white supremacy was invented to protect that profit generating system. It was like, we need an ideology 
that says it's okay for us to like mm-hmm. just treat our fellow human beings like chattel, you know, yeah. grind them into the dirt, That's right. break up their families, sell them off. Like, I mean, just list the horrors. But it's like we yeah. need an ideology that defends well, this because like our profits depend on it. And, and like, check that this was out. That's what got it started. You know, in Ryan's book, Harvey K. Uh, in the last half hour or whatever messaged me uh, to tell me that it's it's uh, Antonio Gramsci's birthday tomorrow, the 22nd of January. <laughs> so this is this is relevant because, Coops, you know, your book does a good job of this. You, you know, you quote uh, Ulysses S. Grant, who who notes that even that um, – white supremacist legitimation of slavery wasn't really working uh, when it seemed like slavery was on the outs materially. Like when it was like, okay, this economic system is on the way out. It's, it's, it's just going to kind of uh, gradually die. The founders kind of thought so. Uh, but whoops, the cotton gin made it so profitable uh, that even Ulysses S. Grant noted, like as soon as profits became super high, uh, and the cotton gin made slavery so profitable. All of a sudden, the ideology followed and shifted, and there was a huge contestation where now slavery is a positive good. And, and, and all of a sudden, now uh, all those who used to, to admit it was a necessary evil, quote unquote, are now saying it's a positive good, and so forth. So, so like you know, this this is happening today with with kind of uh, you know in different forms, uh, racist or otherwise, where. Uh, you know, the, the hegemonic ideology is doing what it needs to do rhetorically to support whatever the material contingent realities are uh, for wealth and power, right? Yeah, yeah. And I think it's, that's also an example of, uh, you know, a way that, uh, again, this type of thing uh, folds back in on itself, you know, because you look at what was slavery good for, economically in the antebellum South. Well, you had a lot of people who owned plantations who made a shitload of profits uh, selling cotton to uh, uh, textile manufacturers in the Northeast and in England. Um, And that uh, totally foreclosed the possibility of those same places getting in on the actual manufacturing of the textiles uh, themselves or anything else, you know. So, so it it I think economists have argued about this, you know, the like whether or not slavery was economically necessary. I think it it wasn't necessary, but it also didn't hurt the initial development of capitalism. Um, and what it did do, I think, more importantly, was it 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 slowed the development of the South. Uh, Permanently, it was one of the poorest uh, parts of the country after the Civil War, and it remains that that today. And the reason is it never got the sort of like egalitarian um, distribution of uh, you know the social product, the socially produced economic, uh, you know the 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 goods and services, the 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 stuff that we want uh, that. Uh, would have justified its, you know, would have been justified by its population, and um, you know, it 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 tells you that I mean, not only that there there is a necessary trade off between equality and uh, a, a wealth at a certain level, but also that like these things leave deep scars 
a place that is that fucked up can remain that fucked up for 170 years now something like that i mean you know the 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 ways in which both uh slavery instituted an incredibly unequal uh economic distribution and also cemented an incredibly unequal uh, social relationship between the people who actually live in the place has fucked that place up beyond all description from, you know, 1800 to, to or before 1800 to the present day. Well, one of the things that like, you know, economists bang the drum on uh, forever and ever is like the importance of productivity growth. And like, yeah. you know, as we have, as we have become a more free market society in the last 40 years, productivity growth has gone down and just keeps going down. <laughs> and I think, you know, there are, there are folks who have been writing about this, like Ryan Avent has mentioned it, like JW Mason again has written about it. And like, I've tried to write about it, but I think like there's a real case to be made that like, Arguably, one of the fundamental drivers of productivity growth and arguably the fundamental driver of productivity growth is the need of firms to like keep revenue ahead of like an empowered workforce's rising wage demands. Mm-hmm. Like if, if you have like well-paid workers and empowered workers who can keep demanding like their sizable cut of the revenue – I mean, if you want to maintain profits, what you have to do is become more productive. You have to figure out how to make every dollar go farther, how to do more with less, how to like get more well, yeah, revenue for the same amount of input for your that's firm. That's the key. If you can't right? do it by cutting wages, you have to do it by innovation and, and efficiency, right? Because right. – And like yeah. innovation, innovation and efficiency at the end of the day are hard to do because you have to be smart. You have to solve problems. You have to work – you have to work at it until you figure out the better business model, the better design of the factory floor, the better like software package, whatever it can be. You have to fit – you have to problem solve and it's much easier to just be like, no, we're going to go into political combat to just like destroy the working class's ability to demand wages yeah. and that may wreck the economy. But like then we don't have to work hard and we can maintain our profit stream. And yeah. to connect this back to the slavery discussion, I mean I – like in one sense, like slavery is just like the ultimate form of like worker disempowerment. I mean, literally, you just turn the person into property, and it's like I don't have to pay you shit anymore. I don't have to worry about your well-being, your health, your family, or anything. I can just work you until you're dead. And like mm-hmm. that is if and to get back to Ryan's point, like you have an entire like section of the country that's built around that economic model. Yeah, there's no productivity growth. Like. The, you know, the antebellum slave owning aristocracy like makes out like bandits, but like everything else gets stuck in the Stone Age. And you have like a region of the country that like has no like institutional history, no like mm-hmm. collective memory and skill sets has been passed down around like productive, large scale economic like activity. And you just, and so yeah, you have the South is now poor as fuck. That's the end of the preview, folks. If you want to hear the whole episode, you can go to patreon.com slash left anchor. Thanks for listening.